Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The short life of and, and, and curious death of free speech in America and a novel, The Rage of a Privileged Class. He began his career as a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times, and for 17 years, he was a columnist and contributing editor for Newsweek magazine. He's also a regular contributor to this program, and it is with great pleasure that I welcome back to our show. Hi, Ellis. Well, hey, Leonard. Uh, great to be with you. How are you? I'm well. Uh, we've had some technical difficulties recently, and uh, shows have been put off, but I'm glad that we were able to work this one out. Uh, we've discussed the First Amendment and your book, The Short Life and, and Curious Death of Free Speech in America, on previous shows. How right. solid was Donald Trump's First Amendment impeachment defense? Uh, I mean, that, that was not a serious defense. It was, um, it, 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 was, it was an instance of his attorneys arguing uh, a point Make a make a political point. I mean, if if you if you saw the the Republican convention, and I'm sure that you did, uh, you had six or seven different speakers proclaim the Republican Party, the the party of the of the First Amendment, mm. um, and basically complaining about cancel culture, and 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 they're complaining that their First Amendment right was violated. I mean, first of all, um, the impeachment is not is, would not have been a violation of his First Amendment right. Uh, any, anyway, I mean, he had a right to speak, um, and they were not um, trying him for speaking. Well, they were trying him for the for the impact of his speech and, and the particular um, incidents that were motivated by that. And there and there have always been restrictions on speech in that way, including uh, even and, and most especially on public official speech. But he's also governed by his mandate. To defend the Constitution and and to protect the citizenry, and, you know, and and so this is just just a smokescreen. I mean, it was an interesting question, but it wasn't one that any scholar of the First Amendment would think was a serious question. His defense argued that at the Stop the Steal rally before the riot on January sixth, he made no direct call to his supporters and to the Capitol to resort to violent actions. Might it be argued that allusions were made? Oh, you could argue that more than illusions were made. You could argue that, that he created the whole environment, but but none of that really has anything to do with the First Amendment. I mean, that 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 was in defense of the charge that he um, basically ignited an insurrection. You know, and you know, one could argue that um, one could argue either way, but it seems pretty clear to me, and pretty clear, I think, to to most objective. Observers and even some unobjective observers, and talking about Mitch McConnell, for instance, that this event was an event that was orchestrated by Trump, and it was an event that would not have happened if he hadn't uh, laid the environment for it to happen, hadn't invited the people uh, to Washington for it to happen, and hadn't presided over that the rally just before it. But but I think even even before we we, we get into the particulars of, of of that, it might be worth just for a second, uh, Leonard. Um, just reflecting on how rare this thing is. I mean, we've only had four impeachments of presidents in our entire history as, as a country, and two of them have been of one man. You know, and and so so before the before the Clinton impeachment, I mean, the only you know, and and the only other impeachment we had in our history was of Andrew Johnson, which goes all the way back to 1868. And and I think the other thing that's that's worth sort of reflecting on is that. 
in the Johnson impeachment and in the Clinton impeachment, you, you did not have um, any member of the other party cross over and vote for, vote for, for conviction. And in the, in the most recent one with Trump, you, know, you had seven. So, so clearly this is something that's, one, rare, uh, and two, there was something very convincing, more, more persuasive than had been presented in any prior impeachment to get people to cross party lines to actually vote uh, to convict a president of their own party. Although they're all on the verge of being punished by well, this, yeah, that, well, that, well, I think that's the state Republican parties. Oh, sure, but well, that, that speaks to I think the the state of dysfunction in some sense that the Republican Party is in, at, at this point, and and the fact that it's been basically taken over by a a radical fringe on on the right, um, which um, is not in in my thinking unlike the the sort of a fringe that took over parts of the Southern Democratic Party during the um, the age of segregation. Now, the, the, the uh, First Amendment keeps on being invoked. Following the riots, Twitter removed Trump from its platform and announced on a blog post on January 8th, quote, after close review of recent tweets from the at real Donald Trump account and the context around right. them, specifically how they are being received and interpreted on and off Twitter, we have permanently suspended the account due to the risk of further incitement of violence. And Trump supporters immediately uh, argued, as in fact his son kind of screamed, that he was being denied his First Amendment rights. But doesn't the First Amendment apply only to governmental actions? Well, absolutely. I mean, I mean, this states quite explicitly, you know, that Congress shall make no law. You know, that abridges this right. It has nothing to do with private actors. Do I mean Congress? Of course, is extended to the federal government uh, in general, but a private company um, can decide that it has rules that its members must abide by. And Trump was obviously violating the rules that uh, that Twitter had decided to establish. I mean, no more than a politician has a right to have his book published if the publisher decides they don't want to publish it. That has nothing to do with the First Amendment. That that's an agreement between a uh, two, you know two private entities. And, and, and as I mean, as a matter of fact, it's it's only been in the last. Um, hundred years that the First Amendment even applied to states. It was it was it was quite specifically written to apply only to the federal government. So, can Twitter and other social media platforms decide to ban anything that we would choose to post, and uh, we would have no recourse? Essentially, yes. I mean, they are private actors. They're they're a private company, um, and they can decide that you know they don't want to allow certain types of things on their platform, uh, and there's little you can do about it. I mean, there are things they can't do. I mean, they, they can't discriminate for racial reasons, you know, and, and they can't break laws. But in terms of setting policies that um, that govern uh, areas of speech, they're perfectly within their rights to do that. So I better be careful about what I say on the air. Um, you say that this show would be a great chance to talk a bit about Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution, a book that former Associate Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens published in 2014. Right. Is, no, was mean, it I based on his court experience? 
these uh, well, thoughts that he had on his court experience. And and I think uh, I mean if if you um, followed the debates uh, around Citizens United, uh, which was a 2010 a Supreme Court case that basically knocked out the spending limits that had been imposed by the um, McCain-Feingold um, uh, reform legislation. Um, that dissent that um, that John Paul Stevens wrote to that, because the majority uh, led by Roberts basically decided that that uh, corporations were persons, and, and as mm-hmm. persons, they had a First Amendment um Right, and that they could pretty much, uh, you know, use that right as extensively as they wanted to in terms of, of, of placing ads and whatnot to support particular candidates, um, and and that totally uh, defanged the um, the financial reform. But I was going to say that the one of the most brilliant dissents you're ever likely to read is the dissent that John Paul Stevens wrote to that decision. And part of his argument was, wait a minute, you guys are nuts. Um, <laughs> corporations are not persons. Corporations can't vote. Corporations don't even necessarily have to be U.S. citizens. Uh, and to give them this uh, kind of rights, you know, not, not only is, is insane, but it ignores the prior presidents of, of the Supreme Court which and, and, and the intentions of the founders who never intended for corporations to be treated you know, as living human beings, and it's, it's just a brilliant dissent, and I and I don't uh, know exactly what the motivation was for Stevens writing this book, but it's yeah you know, one of the one of the things he takes on in that book, you know, in his amendments um, that he proposes, uh, is uh, is an amendment that would allow uh, campaign finance reform, um, but uh, but I think given where we are now as a society, where we are questioning the state of our democracy, where we are questioning the health of this democracy and whether it's even, in fact, a democracy. Um, his book is just a brilliant reminder of some of the structural things in the Constitution that make it difficult to, to have the kind of society that the majority of Americans really want us to have at this point. And so I just thought that given all the turmoil around this set of democracy issues, that it's worth reminding ourselves of this book that um, that Stevens wrote was um, six, seven years ago that I think was prescient and that um, was a uh, look into some of these issues that the Founding Fathers left us to try to settle um, way back in 1789 when they put the Constitution together. But isn't a major stumbling block to changing the Constitution the, the cumbersome amendment process that's set out in Article 5? And is, is that why there have been only 17 amendments in the over 200 years since the ratification of the Bill of Rights, even though the world has changed so much over those 200 years? Oh, sure. And, and of course, the, the last amendment, which was the 27th Amendment, was an amendment uh, dealing with... with, with um, Congressional congressional pay raises, and it took over two hundred years to pass that one. I think that that was a record. <laughs> took a long time uh, to get women's rights uh, passed as well. The ERA. Uh, well, you know, that's still not amendment. Yeah. Know. Um. But, but the I mean I think you're absolutely right. I mean I think one of the things that we have to look at as a society is whether we want to keep the Constitution 
basically frozen the way that it is. And one of the big reasons that we have such a hard time changing it you know, is that there is this requirement that you guess you have to get two thirds of the of, the, of both houses to um, agree on it, and then you got to get three quarters of the state uh, to agree mm-hmm. on it. Uh, it's very difficult to very difficult to get to that point you know, because you have to have something that pretty much the entire society agrees upon, and and, and one of the, one of the um, what I think would be more important um, amendments, which which would look at the whole question of of uh, senatorial representation and whether tiny states should have as many senators as uh, as, as larger states is not only prohibited by the by, by the uh, the way that the constitution sets up the senate but there also is a specific injunction against changing that rule without the state's specific permission so yes you're absolutely right it would be an extremely cumbersome process but I also think that. But I just want to add, as an example, North Dakota has about seven hundred sixty thousand uh, citizens, which is fewer than San Francisco, a smaller yeah. population than San Francisco. I mean, one South, point da- that I South Dakota is about the same as San Francisco. Right, uh, and, and and I mean, one of the points that I made in in, in my in my free speech book was that, you know, at the time that the Constitution was passed, uh, the largest state then was Virginia, and the smallest state was Delaware. You know, and that the difference in size between Virginia and Delaware was basically a factor of 11, that Virginia was, was, was essentially 11 times the size of, of Delaware. Pretty big. Now you have the biggest state is California, uh, and the smallest state is Wyoming. Well, California is roughly 68 times the size of Wyoming, uh, and they both have the same number of representatives. Um, that's just insane. Uh, and it's, it's a violation of the whole principle of one man, one vote. Um, and, but it also it sets up a situation where of, of only basically 18% of the population, if you're looking at, the set, at what it takes to get a Senate majority, controls what the Senate can think, where, where, where the Senate goes. And, and actually, it's even worse than that, because you have you know, this, uh, this thing called the filibuster and, 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 and the thing called cloture, which, which you need to break that, which requires a 60% vote of the Senate um, in order to do that. So you even have a smaller minority than 18% that, in most cases, can dictate what moves through the Senate and what doesn't. And so you have this gridlock where it's, it's, it's virtually impossible to get anything done. Well, wasn't it even more undemocratic initially because uh, senators were originally uh, appointed by state legislatures, weren't they? It, 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 voting yeah, for senators yeah. is only a fairly recent development. Now, why did the, the founders put something so undemocratic in this? Was this a, a sop to the, the slave states? Uh, well, the well, not exactly. I mean, the the, um, the 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 stop to the slave states was was really the way that they did uh, congressional representation uh, when they basically decided that um, slaves would be counted as three fifths mm-hmm. of a person, you know, but not allowed and, to vote, and not allowed to vote. So, so their three fifths of a vote would go to the to the slave owners. Um, no, no. The the decision 
to not have direct representation and to not have direct election you know, of the Senate was originally based in this whole idea, which which also undergirded the Electoral College, that the majority was not capable of making responsible choices, um, that you needed um, educated men, uh, landowners, to serve as a uh, as a bridge between the citizenry themselves uh, and to decide you know who should be president, who decide to decide who should be who should be senators. And so the the, you know, the the founding fathers actually had a very ambivalent feeling about democracy itself. I mean, they did not really believe that um, average people were capable of um, appointing the best representatives. So therefore, they wanted to ensure there was a filtering process. And the filtering process in, in the case of the Senate well, was uh, state legislatures, which uh, which were responsible for that until that was changed by constitutional amendment. I mean, the uh, a few years ago, uh, actually not a few years ago, uh, very recently, um, a few days ago, I guess, uh, David Frum wrote a very interesting article in The Atlantic where he makes, I think, a very interesting point, uh, which basically, you know, he, he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, that in no comparably developed society is voting as difficult as it is um, in the United States. That in, that in no peer society is a legislative chamber where you have 40% of the lawmakers who, who can effectively outvote the other 60%, uh, as in the U.S. Senate, and control what happens there. I mean, I, I think what, 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 we're, what we're dealing with now is a constitution that was written a long time ago by extremely brilliant men uh, who were prescient in lots of ways, but who couldn't foresee the kind of society we would become, who couldn't foresee the kinds of problems that some of the things they were putting in, in place would create, and who also had no idea that parties would become as important as they have become. I mean, we were talking about, you know, a second ago about impeachment and the impeachment of Andrew, uh, Andrew Johnson, you know, which, was, which sort of was the, f- the first one of a, of a president, and one thing that's notable about that is that you know, Andrew Johnson was only president, of course, because Lincoln was assassinated. And Andrew Johnson, of course, had been the vice president, and then he moved up. Uh, but Andrew Johnson was a Democrat. I mean, Lincoln was a Republican. Lincoln chose a Democrat to run as his vice president. That would, that would never happen today. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, the divisions between the parties are, are at a place that they've just never been before. Although people are switching, David Frum was a Republican until fairly recently, until I think Donald Trump became president. Uh, my guest right. is El- Ellis Coase, who uh, discusses uh, issues about uh, our rights uh, on the show regularly. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Uh, Justice Stevens named his book Six Amendments, How and Why We Should Change the Constitution. Uh, What were the changes that he proposed? Uh, And and are are any of them likely to ever happen? Um, I think some are are more likely than others. Um, And, 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 um, I mean, to my mind, I think one of the more important ones he proposed was a change in campaign finance. 
um, mm. and to um, and and to and that change would have allowed Congress or states to impose reasonable limits on spending. And as as, as I was mentioning before, Leonard, I mean one thing that's worth keeping in mind is that it is it's not just what the Constitution says, it's what also what judges decide they think the Constitution says. Um, and in campaign finance, the um, decision that undergirded, uh, or, or, the, or the reasoning that undergirded Citizens United was a very different reasoning that supported uh, McCain-Feingold. You know, so in that case, you could change campaign finance without necessarily having an amendment to the Constitution. You could have a different set of justices who would say, well, wait a minute. Um, I mean, I mean that, you know, that you know, Justice Stevens was right. Uh, so I think that yeah, I think it's possible that we will get fed up enough with the way that spending you know, has um, changed politics and, 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 has, and has made it less and less democratic, that you actually might get an amendment on that issue. But I think you also might get a different court that's going to take a, a, a different. That's going to have a different way of looking at it. I mean, I think another issue that um, that he focused on that's very current uh, is the whole issue of political gerrymandering. Mm. I mean, you just had a decision uh, what last year where Roberts essentially said that um, even though you know they didn't like gerrymandered districts. Um, that that particular political question was, as you put it, beyond the reach of the federal courts. Um, that had been decided that federal courts, yeah, that even though federal courts can uh, step in in racial gerrymandering, uh, they can't step in in political gerrymandering. Well, again, that's a matter of how you interpret the Constitution. Past courts have interpreted it differently. So you could have a court that comes along that says, wait a minute, you know, there's no... There's not a profound enough difference between gerrymandering for racial reasons and gerrymandering for political reasons that we need to make a distinction constitutionally in, in that. So, so that's another one of those things you know, that, could, that could change um, because you get a, a different set of, of justices along. Um, and and, one of the, and I guess the, one of the other points, so one of the other amendments he wanted to uh, write into the Constitution was... Um, Regarding the death penalty, um, and, and his change there actually would not be a change in the amendment. It would be a refinement of the language that would make it clear that the death that that the Second Amendment went back to what it was its original meaning. Um, and in in that case, uh, with the Second Amendment, which is the right to bear arms, uh, the language in the Constitution is about a well-regulated militia and. And of course, that goes back to the time when the United States was very, when the, when the I, should say, I should say, the framers were very concerned about a standing army and about and about the impact that a standing army could have on the, on the states, and about the dictatorship of the executive branch and what could happen with that, and 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 the need of a state militias to to guard against that. Well, obviously. But wait, 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 weren't militias also formed to track down? Uh, Escape slaves, slaves and, and yeah, and things of that nature. So yeah, but but of course we're talking about a time when they um, wrote this amendment, where where the founders were perfectly fine with that. I mean, they supported slavery basically, 
Um, and so they would have been fine with, with militias tracking down the runaway slaves and whatnot. And they also would have been fine with, with the militia standing up to the federal government. You know, and But that's, again, by the decisions of judges, has come to mean is something very, very different uh, than it meant at the time that it was passed. Uh, and so part of what Stevens was arguing is that you know, we need to go back to the original meaning here and, and, and only... And by doing that, maybe we'll get some a, a rational sort of take on what kind of um, rules we should have around gun ownership and and whether or not private citizens should have you know, military grade weapons um, that allow the kinds of atrocities that we've seen in, in schools and other public places over the last several decades. And and so so I say that that some of his points would not necessarily require um, a constitutional amendment. Now, they would just require a, a court that reads things differently. And others of them, of them would. I mean, there and, 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 and I think some of some of the points he you know that, that he argues for are more um, um, I guess less mainstream than, than some of the others. I mean the anti commandeering rule, you know, for instance, which which was basically Allow states to violate federal laws. I mean, and, and 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 which makes it more difficult for the for for the federal government to act uh, in terms in in times of crises and whatnot in in a uh, uniform way. I mean, is is another amendment he would he would insert to uh, allow state governments to be sued for money damages? Well, that's the um, sovereign immunity, which is mm-hmm. which is which is which is another amendment, right? I mean, basically. Governments, state and federal, for that matter, can only be sued if they agree to be sued. If they allow themselves to be sued, yeah. At, at this point, now the only uh, militias we hear about in the media these days are right-wing groups like the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. Uh, right. So they, none of them are truly militias, but they really uh, are state militias, and 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 that's necessarily not what the framers had in mind when they wrote in the language about about militias. Are there any militias now? Not to my knowledge. Not in not in the way that um, that that the framers in, intended them. I mean, you obviously have the National Guard uh, and things of that nature, and you and you, and you have um, you know, police entities, but um, not in the way that they defined militias. No. And wasn't the Ku Klux Klan Act uh, enacted in eighteen seventy one to bar violent interference uh, in Congress's constitutional duties by what was then a militia? Uh, it, yeah, well, it's it's interesting how you how you want to classify the Klan because it was it was not a it was not a, it was not a militia convened by the state by any means. It was a, it was a, a group organized by private individuals and it acted as a militia and considered itself a militia. Um, but because it had the active support of state governments throughout the South. Um, it acted pretty much with impunity, um, and and it, it it and it sort of had a, had arisen, you know, to push back against the reforms originally of of the uh, Reconstruction era, um, and then it had a rebirth you know, in the in the twentieth century again, again with the when when Jim Crow was imposed. But you're but you're absolutely right. The Ku Klux Klan Act wasn't was hmm. you know, came up um, in response to that and. And as part of the effort to uh, to wipe out the Klan, members of the Missouri House just approved the Second Amendment Preservation Act that seeks to protect the f- 
the uh, Second Amendment rights of Missourians against an overreaching federal government. And Tennessee State Representative Scotty Campbell just proposed legislation to make Tennessee a Second Amendment sanctuary state. He said, if Speaker Pelosi or President Biden decided to try to take firearms from Tennesseans or limit our ability to purchase ammunition or track our purchasing of ammunition, uh, right. this draws the line in the sand saying no. Uh, and, and at this point, they are permitted to do that. I mean, the um, for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is the anti-commandeering rule, you know, which allows states to violate you know, federal laws. And the other is the, is, is, is the protection that judges have, have, have decided in the last several decades to read into the, to read into the Second Amendment. Um, I think that we're a long way from... from from changing that, even though a vast majority of Americans would like to see some fundamental change in how we look at weaponry and how we how we regard uh, how we handle guns in this country, um, but it's uh, it, it's it, it bears some structural issues around that, and and I think as with so many of these questions, it's going to take you know a lot of dialogue and a, and a lot of uh, sort of soul searching within the society for us to decide what kind of America we actually want. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Freedom of speech Freedom to say to think this is my lucky day freedom of thought freedom of dreams freedom to believe that we all can be kings my guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Ellis Coase he's a regular contributor to this show and author of a number of books that uh we have discussed in the past, including Democracy If We Can Keep It and the Short Life and Curious Death of Free Speech in America. Now, um, we were talking about uh, Justice Stevens' book. Uh, did anybody take it seriously? Obviously, nobody has acted on any of his proposals. Um, well, I think it was taken seriously, and I think that, that people who have an interest in the Constitution thought of it as a valuable contribution, particularly since it was made by a, a former justice uh, on the Supreme Court who's actually had to deal with these issues personally and sort of think through the implications of them. But I also think that we were in a, in a somewhat different place in 2014 when that book was published uh, than we are now. We were in a pre-Trump era. Mm. Uh, we were in an era when uh, it was not the general consensus that our democracy was endangered. And I so, so I think we can have a different kind of dialogue now than we had seven years ago. Um, and, and you say that it seems essential at this moment that we seriously rethink how to deal with the challenges left us by the framers. Uh, I think the challenges left us by the framers, and I, but I think also it's also the challenges left us by this political moment uh, where we have uh, uh, one one major political party 
which has decided to metamorphosize in, in, into something different than what it was before. Uh, and, and, and speaking specifically in this case of the Republican Party, which in large measure has become not only the Trump Party, um, but the White Grievance Party, uh, with White Grievance as a motivating principle behind um, how it sees itself and what it does. So the roles and, of the parties have changed almost totally since uh, the, the time of Andrew Johnson. The, oh, the, well, the Democrats were the White Grievance Party at the time, and the Republicans were, well, they had a, a fairly large radical wing. And now well, the it's the other way around. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, the Republican Party you know, was was uh, basically rooted um, in the um, decision to oppose the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. I mean, it grew directly you know, out of um, the compromise of 1854, you know, which which basically made the uh, you know the the Kansas Nebraska Act. Um, which uh, which allowed uh, the possibility that those western t- territories would be slave states, at least some of them would be. Um, and and as, as I'm sure you know, I mean, the Whig Party was the dominant party um, at, the, at the time, um, or one of the two dominant parties at the time. And, and basically the rise of the Republican Party signaled the death knell well, the Whig Party, uh, which which which, was, which then went into death rows not too long after that, and and I wonder whether we're at a sort of a comparable place now because it seems that the Republican Party has twisted itself into such a place that its long term viability as a party seems to be in question and. The, I mean, if, if you look at the latest Gallup poll, the Republican Party now has claims 25% of the, Amer- of, the, of, the Amer- of the American population which claim to be Republicans. That's a sharp drop from even 15, 16 years ago where you had close to 50% of the population uh, claiming, and depending on the poll, that they were Republicans. Uh, and in terms of what the party stands for, it's just not clear. I mean, there was a time where the party stood for a set of things, um, including, you know, a, um, being deficit hawks and, 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 and including um, a certain approach to foreign policy, which now is not quite clear they do, and and if you and if you go to the you know the last uh, national convention at which they decided not even to have a party platform, uh, essentially their platform was we support whatever Trump tells us to support. Um, that's not a that's that's not that's not a prescription for the long term viability of any kind of institution, and certainly not for a political party. Well, they they seem to be selective in how they apply those things. For example. Uh, their deficit hawks now in opposing uh, the the Biden uh, uh, plan for uh, you know uh, sure. but at the same time they really weren't deficit yeah, hawks when they when they uh, enacted uh, tax cuts for the the wealthy a few years ago yeah and and people clearly see through that people who are who are not um, under the um, the sway of the party already, and then I think that's one of the reasons why you're seeing this mass exodus 
from the uh, from the Republican Party. Um, I mean, they hold on to power as a, as a minority power because of the particular configuration that the Constitution you know left us with. You know, and they can be dominant for a while without having you know, without having a majority of the population. But at some point, even that begins to become a question. Well, the polls are interesting. Uh, views on the Electoral College appear to break down along party lines with 71% of Democrats and only 37% of Republicans wanting to change the Electoral College system. And it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, I mean, the given that the Republican Party is a minority party, you know, the big question that they have beyond their internal issues uh, and their internal fights that they're having right now is how do they stay in power? They can't stay in power um, depending on the majority of the public to support them because the majority of the, of the public just doesn't support them at this point uh, in, in our evolution as a society. So then the question becomes, well, well, what ways does the minority have to cling to power? And one of the ways is, of course, through the Electoral College, uh, which, uh, which again, is, is not a very representative form of government. I mean, when you have, um, as happened with um, the former, you know, the previous election, Hillary Clinton win by you know, over 3 million votes and still loses the election. There's something that's insane about that. And Or this time around, when you had uh, Trump lose by uh, you know, basically 7 million and he's still claiming, I mean, obviously it's a lie, but still claiming that he should have won the election, you know, via the electoral college, and, and, and actually, you know, the whole insurrection of January sixth was around that was around that issue. But the very possibility that you lose by millions and millions of votes and still could become president was what he was clinging to, and that should not be a possibility, but it well, is, you know, un, under our system. In a Pew Research survey conducted in January 2020, so that's over a year ago. 55% of the American public said that the winner of the popular vote should win the presidency. That's only 55%. That means, well, I don't know whether it's 55, 45, but that's a lot of people who don't necessarily believe the winner of the popular vote should win the presidency. Sure. Perhaps sure, we sure. shouldn't have been surprised by how many people then supported Donald Trump's claim that he had actually won. Well, you have a lot of people who who don't believe in democracy, you know, in this country. You don't have a majority. The majority clearly believes in democracy, but you have a lot of people who don't believe in it. Yeah, you know, and and so the whole rise of voter suppression, all you know, these various tactics to keep people of color, to keep young people from voting in in, in various counties and various states, uh, is driven again by this fear um, of the of the majority, um, and. That's intensified in recent years, and I think one of the reasons it's intensified is you have a moment, um, and not unlike um, the Civil War moment, where people think that society is going to change in some pretty drastic way, uh, and, and they feel threatened, and they feel a need to stand up against that, and, and the... And, and and that's was part of what I was referring to a little bit earlier when I talked about the limitations of a white grievance party, I mean, one of the reasons you have that happening is because the United States is becoming a much more diverse society. It's becoming a society that obviously has more people of color, you know, and it, uh, the the black population is increasing, the Latino population is is increasing. 
um, the non-white population in general is increasing, uh, and and also there, you have younger people who are now allowed to vote who tend to be more progressive than than older people, and the appeal of uh, "Make America Great Again" was the appeal of we can stop time, we can we can we can stop this these changes in our society, or at least with, or at least the political ramifications that flow from those changes, uh, if we take a stand. Um, and we have to save, quote, our country from from you know, these other people who are trying to co-opt it. I mean, that's a very, very powerful set of emotions that get put into into play. Unfortunately, they don't lead to very rational decisions about government, but it's, but it's a very powerful motivating factor to get people to vote certain ways. But when I was in school, maybe this was just the schools in Brooklyn, we were told that majority rule was what democracy was all about. Um, and we believe that uh, in the abstract as a society. Um, but I think, um, you know, we were talking a little bit, you know, a second ago about how the, how the founders didn't even believe in majority rule. I mean, they believed in an enlightened minority. Well, they excluded women as well. Well, they excluded women. They 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 excluded blacks. I mean, the you know, the the um, even and even um, the first naturalization act. You know, basically, you know, the language of it was that in order to be naturalized, you had to be uh, free um, and white. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so they excluded lots of people. I mean, over half the population just in excluding women, uh, and they excluded Native Americans. I mean, Native Americans were essentially considered um, another state or foreigners. You know, they weren't considered citizens of, of, of this country. Um, and you had um, a, um, because because the, the rule did not ex- exclude just blacks, it didn't exclude anybody who, who wasn't white. I mean, you had throughout the late parts of uh, the 19th century and into the early parts of the 20th century, court cases where you had people who were from India, who were, who, who were from Syria, who were from, who were from Turkey, who were from uh, various um, uh, Arab countries, who were from Japan, trying to prove that they were white in order to be, to be naturalized. You know, so, so, so you had a very ex- exclusive sort of sense of who belonged to this country in terms of who could vote. Um, and, and, and who actually this country was designed to serve. And it's only been recently that those changes in, in the Naturalization Act, um, and well, recently, you know, the last century, in the middle of the last century, um, that those things have been changed. Uh, and so there are a lot of people who still cling to this idea that you know, America is supposed to be a white country. Uh, and that anything that takes us in a direction where it's becoming less of a white country is dangerous and un-American. So, so you have people who consider themselves patriots uh, who are protecting their country by protecting that vision of a country. Ironically, immigration uh, of, from Asia was only opened up uh, by Richard Nixon. So that was um, fairly recent. Well, it was it was it was opened up. I mean, the the and then I, and I won't, won't go through the whole thing, but but the but the but the beginning of barring specifically Asian immigration happened um, began with with the with the Chinese Exclusion Act of mm-hmm. eighteen eighty two, 
Uh, then you had the barring of Japanese, which took, which, took, which took place a little bit later, you know, through the so-called Gentleman's Agreement. And then you had a series of changes in the 1917 law, which targeted the, basically rest, the rest of the Asian countries. Uh, some of that ended in 1952 with changes in legislation, and a, a lot of it ended in 1865 when, 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 we, when we had a, a fundamental reform of, of the Immigration Act, because before 1865, Quotas had been set by what was called national origins. Basically, it was an attempt to replicate the um, ethnic mix then in, that was in place uh, in an earlier time in our country. So you had these huge quotas for European countries, particularly northern and western European countries, and, and much smaller quotas for everybody else. Uh, so, so there have been a series of reforms uh, going back uh, to 1952, you know, particularly in 65 and through the Nixon administration, that have forced changes in that, absolutely. When you, first of all, uh, I want my audience to know that my guest is Ellis Coase. This is Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. When you look back at what happened in the impeachment trial, do you think that constitutional law failed us? I mean, without a conviction, what has that trial actually accomplished? Well, I think that what it's taught us is that impeachment uh, as a means of removal, removing a president just doesn't work. Uh, it, it, you know, I mean, the, I, I, it, the framers had this idea that people would vote on the evidence as opposed to vote along party lines. And what has become mm -hmm. extremely clear uh, is that people vote along party lines. You know, and, and, so, and so as long as you have two parties and as long as you have... Uh, a requirement that you need a two-thirds vote of the Senate, and as long as the Senate has one party, uh, has, as long as one party has more than one-third of the Senate, you're never going to remove a president um, under the uh, impeachment clause of, of the Constitution. I think that's what has become clear. Um, was it useful? Yes, I think it was useful. I mean, I think that the, and, and, and just even to, finish, to finish the point, though, I mean, and to reiterate sort of what I said earlier, I mean, you had something happen in this last impeachment that's never happened before. Uh, you had, you know, seven people of another party vote against their party. That's seven times who, that, the number of who, who ever done that in history. Uh, and, the, and, the, and the first time that, that happened was when Mitt Romney um, voted as a, as a lone Republican on the first impeachment. So, again, that's just never happened before, and I, and I think we just ought to realize that impeachment of presidents just doesn't work as a way of removing a president. Um, but what it did do is it gave the House managers an opportunity to present a case to the public, and a case that virtually everybody, you know, including um, the Republicans who voted to um, not convict had to concede uh, was persuasive, um, and I mean, starting of course with Mitch McConnell, uh, and who and who essentially evaded um, responsibility for their votes by claiming a technicality, by by claiming you know erroneously that they could not uh, convict him because he was no longer in office. So, I, so I think it did serve a function. And, and I, I also think that you know, we now have you know, Nancy Pelosi, who's announced um, that she's going to have a commission uh, to, to look at this. And I'm not 
in general a big fan of congressional commissions or national commissions. I, I don't think they have they tend to have much impact, uh, but every now and again they do. I mean, and and I think that the nine eleven commission was one of those that raised a lot of questions and had some impact. And going all the way back uh, to 1968, when you had the Kerner Commission, you know, looking at race in America, I think again that that was a commission that contributed in a fundamental way to our understanding. And I think that one of the reasons that those two commissions made a difference, and there are a thousand other commissions you could name that nobody's ever heard of that didn't make a difference, is that they came along in a particular moment. Uh, And I think we are at a particular moment, again, in our society, where people are really looking for answers, where people are are going, my God, this is not the country that we thought it was. Uh, Where are we headed? Uh, And how do we sort of get a place that makes a bit more sense. Uh, and and I, so I think that coming out of this terrible incident uh, in January, um, both the, uh, you know, the trial and the Senate uh, combined with the contribution that we hope uh, that a commission will make will allow us to begin to take stock in a way we haven't been able to before. So I, so I, think, so I think that it did serve a purpose. I just don't think that it served its stated purpose. Well, in, an, in an NBC News poll, 89% of Democratic voters believe Trump should be impeached, compared to only 8% of Republican voters. And independents right. were split with 43% for and 53% against, interestingly. Uh, and right. you say that as long as we have a two-party system, it'll be virtually impossible to convict even the worst president imaginable. Yeah, I mean, the very fact that, you know, I mean, we've had a country, um, you know, since the... Um, the late 1700s, uh, you know, given that in all of that time, we have never removed a president you know, with the impeachment clause. That should tell us something. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's a pretty bad president. Yeah, we've had some pretty bad presidents. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, it's not clear what would have happened if Nixon had stood in his stood impeachment. Yeah. Um, but he didn't. You know, he, he, you know, he, you know, he realized that he needed to leave, and he decided to leave, you know, of his own accord, more or less. Um, but this, but, but as, as an instrument of removal of a president, um, or or even as, as a punishment of a president, because obviously Trump had already uh, been voted out uh, when that when that trial was actually uh, held. Uh, it's not a. It's not an effective instrument, and no. I think that. Go ahead. No, well, I, I was just going to say we have very little time left, but I wanted to ask you about the grounds for impeachment, which are treason, bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors, although uh, the Constitution doesn't define high crimes and misdemeanors. And right. didn't Gerald Ford argue in regard to high crimes and misdemeanors that, quote, an impeachable offense is whatever a majority of the House of Representatives considers it to be at a given moment in history? Right, and a lot of people have made that point. I mean, it, it is it is undefined. It doesn't, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you broke the law. And 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 that's one of the reasons why so many people, uh, or at least the defenders of the president, were trying to apply legal standards to this behavior and saying, well, you, you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he ignited this, you know, this riot and, and this insurrection. The standard's different for impeachment. I mean, it's, it's basically, as you said, and as, for, and as Ford said, it's whatever they decide that it mm-hmm. is. Uh, and that's different than a court of law. And, 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 and where you have a judge with the president, you know, on, you know to, and to make rulings, 
to decide whether the burden of proof has been met or not. Uh, it's, this, is, this is a totally different set of, set of rules. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Ellis, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest, and uh, I look forward to the next time you come on our show. It's been a real pleasure, a pleasure talking with you. Great. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Kate Guan Allison for preparing today's interview. If you're new to this program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopatedLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I would like to take just a minute or two to ask you to support WBAI. We're hoping that all of our listeners who have the finances to do so will step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 516-620-3602 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now to keep the the kind of unique, in-depth content that we are able to bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We uh, have prided ourselves over the past 60 years of being free speech radio, and I'd like to believe that, that on the whole we live up to that standard and that it's something that our listeners appreciate. Well, our funds have gotten very tight as a result of the pandemic, And we need your help to keep this historic station the only one on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored on the air. So please make that call right now. And if you consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, $10 or $15 a month, uh, as long as you wish to do that, that would really be greatly appreciated. So why not make that call right now in the name of Leonard Lopate at large so that we can keep bringing you these long form interviews that you can't get anywhere else. Again, the number to call 516-620-3602 or you can go to give to wbai.org on the web. And to everyone who's already stepped up and Uh, supported this program and the station during this terrible pandemic. We thank you very much. And we hope that you can join us again on tomorrow's show when Mark Bray will discuss what Antifa really is and what it isn't. We'll see you then.